Hello, and welcome back to Brace. On today's episode, Tommy and I are going to be discussing some current event topics around books, specifically the question of sensitivity or censorship when it comes to works of people that are now deceased. There have been a number of famous authors and famous works recently that have come under scrutiny because publishers have chosen to rewrite specific passages that are viewed now as offensive in today's light. I'm going to read now from an article that Tommy and I talked about for a little while. Ride the News is a great news source. If you all are on Instagram, they package it very well and, and very digestibly. So two of the most popular writers in history are having their books revised. One is Ian Fleming, who authored the James Bond series, and the other is Roald Dahl, very popular children's author who wrote James and the Giant Peach, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and The Twits. Two weeks ago, and this was about a week later that we are talking about it, news emerged that Puffin, the publisher for Dahl's books, had hired a sensitivity team to rewrite sections of that book. Among the changes, references to characters' weight, intelligence, and gender would be changed. All of the books would feature a disclaimer. This book was written many years ago, so we regularly review the language to ensure that it can be continued to be enjoyed by all today. But, obviously, this was not without its scrutiny. There was some backlash from it. Three days after that was announced, Sunday Telegraph reported that other changes are being made in the James Bond series as well, which has 14 installments by Ian Fleming. The organization that owns this book says the edits are as close to the original text as possible, but will change content deemed offensive to modern readers. Some of the reported changes include, during a striptease scene at a Harlem nightclub, Bond could hear the audience panting and grunting like pigs at the trough is being changed to Bond could sense the electric tension in the room. New versions, some, some of the new versions will omit racial slurs, but not all of them. They don't omit slurs for Asian people or Bond's mocking description of an odd job, a Korean character, and blithering woman doing man's work and references to homosexuality as a disability are also reportedly being kept in. The company that owns James Bond hasn't said if they will keep the originals as Dahl's books will do or whether they will be discontinued for good. So the end of this article asks, what do you think about changing the books? So I'm going to specify that question a little bit more for you, Tommy. What was your initial reaction to hearing that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was being somewhat rewritten? My initial reaction... The way I found out, let's start with that, was a author that I'm working with to help him get his book published sent me this article that Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was going to be rewritten for modern audiences. I took a read, and I should probably find it, but I believe I said something like, this is horrible. The reason I believe it's horrible, right? So my visceral reaction immediately was, you should not be changing the words that authors have written. The reason I feel that is there's a time and a place when these things were written. And 
I believe that words have meaning. A book isn't written in order to not offend people. A choice is being made by a reader to be offended. That is on the reader if they choose to take in the words and be offended by that. I have a strong understanding and comprehension, especially as I am starting to write my own books, that the things I write, the words that I put out there, it's not like it was willy-nilly overnight. I put it out on Twitter. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into choosing the correct words. For instance, in the Ian Fleming book, the James Bond, where it's talking about the pigs in the trough, it's describing men in a dark place. It's describing men as pigs in the trough, animalistic. Electric sense does not do the same thing as pigs ready at the trough. There's a reason these words are being used. And I don't think that a publisher or an estate, after someone has passed, should be able to make that decision to change words. And honestly, I'm, I'm happy that Roald Dahl's publisher is going to keep the originals. My thought on that is buy the originals. There's a reason for those words. Capitalism will play its part, and the new versions for the new narrative, they're not going to be bought because people don't want that. That was my initial visceral reaction and also okay. some thoughts and takeaways. What, what, were, what were your thoughts, Paul, when you had first heard this? I don't remember where I first heard this. I did listen to some commentators give their thoughts on it. And I thought when you get into the specifics about what words are being changed, that's where I found the conversation to be very interesting. I, I agree with you fundamentally that it isn't a good thing for us to go back and edit works of literature. I think if you open a book and it's written in 1929, you should have that context then for the words that follow and understand that some of the definitions may have different connotations when we talk about them in 2023 than they did in 1929. But when we look at actually the nuts and bolts of what the changes are, are, I agree with you that that example in the nightclub doesn't convey the same message. And it's very important that the same message is conveyed if you're going to choose to edit works to make them less hurtful in some way. I'm also very curious to know who was finding that passage hurtful. Was there a group of regular attendees at the strip clubs that were saying, excuse us? We are fine gentlemen in this community, and you don't need to be calling us pigs here. That's terrible, because I'd be very curious to see what that uh, discussion was, was like. It, it doesn't matter to me if those people are offended. That was what Ian Fleming decided to write to describe a group of men at a Harlem strip club. That and was even, his choice as a writer. Right, and, and that can be a reality for that specific moment even in a fictional book, that a group of guys at a different Harlem strip club at a different night don't have to believe that they're pigs because of that, right? A hundred percent. The one example in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory of Augustus Gloop's 
description being changed from fat to enormous. I was pretty amazed by that. Is this supposed to be less offensive to fat people? Because for me, fat is a objective description. You can look at someone and say, well, that that is a fat person. I find it subjectively more offensive to look at a person and say, that is an enormous person. <laughs> so I, I don't know if, if we're worried about people's feelings. How do you know that the words you're picking aren't going to be more offensive five minutes from now? Because that it, it leads us to the euphemism treadmill, which I think you and I do want to talk about how language develops over time because of this idea of being sensitive and it doesn't actually help the group it's pertaining to be concerned for. So the euphemistic treadmill, the way I comprehend it is words that are upsetting 50 years ago start to be changed, start to be rewritten. Those then adapt into new words that convey the same thing. Thus, we're going to have to eliminate all speech if we want to not upset people, right? Because if, the, if it's definitionally the same thing, then now people start using it derogatorily, right? Yes. The example that I saw that was pretty well said was talking about the term handicapped now. Some people say that is an offensive term. And that was the politically correct change from the word crippled. And both of those essentially mean the same thing. The person is limited somewhat in their ability to act in the world. And so when crippled was so offensive that it was taken out of polite society, then handicapped took over. And now people are saying, well, we need to call them handicapable, right? Or, or something like that. There's, there's going to be a new word that takes that. And then handicapped is going to be one of those things that we can't talk about. What is handicapable supposed to mean? That they're somehow capable. That they're they're able to do it exactly. They are capable. But if they is, aren't capable of walking, they can't walk. Therefore, handicapable will turn into an offensive term sooner rather than later. And if you look at the mentally disabled, it's the same thing. The I don't remember what the old old word was, but then the word retarded was the nice version of whatever that word was, and then that has come out of modern parlance it, is it mentally disabled is that what we're we're saying now because i could I, I couldn't tell you words are changing too quickly i think that that is definitionally offensive because all you're saying is oh they're disabled they're unable to do the things and it's like yeah that is what we're describing as someone that cannot do what a majority of people can do and that's why this word needs to exist to give a description that puts a person in that group. And they're saying, well, if you're putting someone in that group, that's offensive. It's like, no, we're describing reality as it objectively exists. So I find that the idea that words have to change over time to be unhelpful in day-to-day -day life in reality. And I think the people that are so obsessed with trying to find the way to make all of life inoffensive aren't actually living life. They are focused on creating a padded world that does not hold up to any scrutiny. One of my favorite examples of, this is a, a bit tangential to actual words, but the transgender movement has been big in the West 
and not so big in the East, as in Asia, um, the Middle East, and even the sections of Eastern Europe have been much slower to make that part of their culture. So when the war breaks out in Russia and Ukraine, all these men who are identifying as women say, well, I'm leaving now. And Ukraine said, well, all men have to stay and fight. And they're saying, well, I'm not a man. It's like, well, you may have thought that society was accepting you here, uh, that your reality is the truth. But, well, when we need bodies to fight, we don't care how offensive we're going to be. You're going to go ahead and stay and you're going to fight. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I thought about something and I wanted to point it out. Since we're talking about changing words and biases and things that may or may not be more offensive or less offensive, I wanted to point out that when you and I reviewed Sapiens, we had our own bias where we saw that Christian ethics were not portrayed by the writer. And I think there's a difference between criticism and censorship. I think it's totally fine for you and I to criticize and say, Yuval Noah Harari, had you talked with more Christians, this book may have gotten more better reception from Christians. Whereas we're not going out and saying, cancel this book or rewrite it in a Christian viewpoint. So I think there's a very important distinction there when it comes to criticism versus censorship. That's a that's a great point. That's very insightful. I didn't really put that connection together, but I definitely agree with you that criticism is necessary for all works, whether it's artistic or linguistic or, or whatever it might be. It's important to provide that feedback for the person because that's the only way that they have the opportunity to grow and do better next time. Censorship takes away the ability for you and I and the other people that might read that book to think critically and say, well, why was this written in this way? Is there a better way that this could have been written? And hopefully that allows us to grow as readers, as thinkers, as writers as well. And this is a bit of an extension, right? We're still going to be able to read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. We're still going to be able to read some of these books, but the metaphors and the language used are things that we could think critically about and make a decision about. And now that's being taken away from us. The ability to think critically and say, is calling Augustus Gloop fat the, the best option? And there's another change that I want to bring up that I just don't understand. And I, I think this has to do with the transgender movement in the West is why it's happening. But I still don't understand why this change would be needed. In the book Matilda, her description as female is being changed to a woman. Where, where it calls her female is now calling her woman. And it seems like that is to try to take away the gender norms surrounding what a female should be versus what a woman should be. The absolutism of biological reality. It's saying instead of you are a female, therefore you're a woman. Well, she was just a woman because that's what she decided she was. Possibly. Possibly I don't know. Possible. I don't know for sure. But it seems very odd that that would be a, a choice to change. Meanwhile, you're keeping, well, 
not in that book, but in other books, you're keeping in racial slurs and you're keeping in these things where it feels easier to justify that change if we're going to be justifying changes, which I don't think we should, than it does to say fat needs to be enormous or female needs to be woman. As a understanding for listeners, the writing process looks like a first draft. Then it looks like edit after edit after edit. Jordan Peterson put out a essay app where I was listening to him speak. I don't know if it was on Rogan or if it was on another podcast, but he was talking about the way it works is, you know, you write your first draft and then, okay, does this sentence work here? Does this word work in this sentence? It's all about the writing process. And I want to portray it as much as I can that the words chosen by a writer especially good writers, well-known writers, have been thought about over and over and over. The individual words. And so it's really an affront to other writers to see changes being made by someone that is not the author. Right? When, when it comes to working with an editor, they're going to give you options and say, hey, I think this could be better. But it's not giving up your rights to choose what those words are. There's a reason that words are chosen, and especially in a fictional story, it's to portray something. Not to fan out too much yes. on Jordan Peterson, but his description of the writing process for all of his books is inspiring to me because it ends up with the best version of the work. And that, I think, probably is not how every writer ever has done things. I don't think that Stephen King can possibly do that because he writes three books a year or whatever it is. But when you choose to write in the way that Jordan talks about by sitting down and getting as much out as you can and then eliminating most of it and rearranging and then rewriting and rewriting and condensing as much as you can and then rewriting and rewriting and condensing and then Basically, what you have is the distilled idea as well as you can distill it and format it as well as you can format it to get the point across. The idea that someone would then come in and change those words. And of course, we're talking about Jordan writes, I don't want to say self-help books, but very highly intellectual works, whereas we're talking about works of fiction. But if you imagine that those authors went through the same process of having a scene in their mind and writing it out one way and then condensing it and changing the words a little bit and then rewriting it and rewriting it and condensing it and then deciding that, yes, this is the best way that I can come up with to portray the experience of this character in this moment. To then say 55 years later, oh, you know what we need to do? make this scene less offensive to this specific group of people. It seems so ingenuine to the reader's experience of going through and walking in the shoes of what the author wanted us to feel in that moment. Yeah, and to take it to the book is always better than the movie, right? Being a big fiction reader, I know that The Maze Runner, I really enjoyed the book. And when I saw the movie, I was disgusted. I know that a movie can't be made in the exact same image 
as the written work. There's so much more detail and description that that can be put into a 300-page book versus a hour-and-a-half movie. At the same time, when you start changing important things, especially if they're sequels, you're being disingenuous to the readers. For me, as a reader, I have an image in my head. I am translated or transported to another place where I am visibly a fly on the wall seeing what's going on. And that's because of the words that the authors have chosen. That vision is not the same if you... I could not comprehend the electric sense in the Harlem nightclub as I could the darkness of men wanting to see a woman naked on the bar, right? Describing them as pigs at the trough. Yeah, it's, it's a perfect way to put that. Electric sense, that almost has like a cool fling to it. Oh, the electric sense. And that's not what the writer was trying to portray. Yeah, one thing that came to mind there when you were talking was, first of all, you read the Aragon books, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you watch that movie? That was a that was probably the worst adaptation of a book that I was a big fan of. Like the Aragon series was big for me, and then that Percy Jackson all... and the Lightning Thief was okay. the most atrocious was, because he's supposed to be twelve years old and he's, he's sixteen, like, and the whole point is that there's a prophecy that when he's six, it I. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's literally going to blow we don't up. Don't get into it. Yeah, no, it's it there there are a number of them that are bad. Oh, but when you think about another book that we aren't going to do a book review on anytime soon, but that we have always talked about doing and and that you've already brought up, The Name of the Wind, when he starts out the book with the wildest description of silence that I have ever heard, uh, a silence of three parts or four parts, and he goes into the depth of the silence and then you imagine that change to the screen that can't happen. You you can't get that level of depth of the silence unless it was literally a narrator saying the exact thing that we were reading in the book uh, in order to, to get that across. The part of fiction reading that draws people back every time is that you do get transported to that new world and you do live very fully through the characters as they go through the story. And those little adjustments in the language have big changes to your perception. And if we're putting aside the author's intent as the reader's experience, I would always rather have the opportunity to be offended just even for myself than live in a, in a cushioned world where the story isn't as intense and as real, because if you've ever lived in reality, you've probably been offended by something you've probably been hurt you've probably been attacked about something regarding something about you personally and if a character can't go undergo that process as well then that character becomes fake in a way that fiction is supposed to portray real life and i would just say this has been a, a good conversation about books and words and i really hope that our readers will agree with us that it's best to support original versions. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it's important that we provide backlash to changes in censorship. Because the thing is, writers that are dead can no longer speak for themselves. The fans of those writers have to speak. Don't do anything violently, but speak out. Use your word. Use your ability to communicate 
to say this is wrong. All it takes for evil to succeed is for a good man to say nothing. So if you want to support original copies, don't buy the new ones. Don't. If you want to support the new copies, then vote with your dollar that way. If you totally disagree with us, that's understandable. But I hope that you can at least understand our perspective. And especially when it comes to someone that wants to be an author, right? J.K. Rowling was a big influence in my life as well, where I know reading Harry Potter, it made me want to be a writer. If I could put that vision into someone else's head because of the things I wrote, how incredible would that be? What if I could transport someone to another place? But the thing is, if you start changing my words, or if you start changing Paul's words, or if you start changing Ian Fleming's words, the readers aren't going to get the same image I wanted them to get. And that's why it's important. It's, it's integrity. It's integrity to the creator of that work. I have two things that I want to say here. One is respond to what you just said about Harry Potter. It's funny. You said you wanted, after reading Harry Potter, it made you want to be a writer. And for me, reading Harry Potter made me want to be a reader. I was so enveloped by that world that I, I didn't want to live anywhere else other than in that existence of where Harry Potter was. And I said, wow, if fiction can do this, can bring me to an awesome place and tell me an awesome story and make me relate so fully with a character, I want to do that all the time. So I think that the when the fifth Harry Potter book came out, I don't remember how old I was. So 2007, I think it was, I would have been, it was in the summer. So I would have been 11 years old. I read it in three days. That's a 900 page book. That's insane. And and when I look back at that, I'm like, first of all, I was a way better reader <laughs> then than I am now. But it also really created that lifelong love for fiction and the process of reading and, and living in a new place when you're when you're in a book that is awesome. And the other thing that I want to say real quick, we haven't talked about it, but this isn't nearly as fresh news as, as these other two authors. But at the end of last year, a feminist retelling of 1984 by George Orwell was approved by his estate. And basically what that looks like is the main character has a lover named Julia and the entire plot is going to be rewritten from her perspective. And the part about that, that is again, difficult and painful for me, isn't that there's a woman main character, but it's that, George Orwell isn't the one that gets to write this world anymore. Someone else gets to come in and say, this is how things would go. And the idea that the place that has a ministry of truth is being rewritten to fit in the feminist ideas that want to make that a priority, that it has to be a woman lead, it just makes me concerned that you're missing the whole point. Hey, I think that's a uh, great way to end it. Besides, I actually think that Harry Potter enveloped in me a certain feeling that I, by 12 years old, was going to get my letter. And I never got that letter. But anyways. I, I, I never lived in the fantasy reality where I thought that I would get a broomstick or a letter or anything like that to, to go to live in a, a magical castle. I knew that it was fiction, but I enjoyed the heck out of that. It's OK. Movie. I thought it, I thought it was real. But anyways, fiction's good.
would you ever get a tattoo for a fiction series? In a sense, I'm going to. It's a video game series, but not, I, I'm in a fiction book. I've seen so many people with Harry Potter tattoos is why I ask that, like the either the Deathly Hollows or something like that. I understand that it had a huge impact on my life, but for me, tattoos are, are on a different level than getting HP. I don't know. It depends on what type of mood I'm in. Oh, if, someone, if, if I read a really good book and then I go to a tattoo parlor, I'm getting a tattoo. Oh, Tommy. Gotta love it. All right. Well, uh, on that hilarious <laughs> note, thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Give us your feedback. If you disagree with everything we said, tell us if you agree with everything we said. We're glad we have some smart listeners. Just kidding. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. We ask you to follow us on Instagram at brace.22. Paul's Twitter is at Paul from Brace. And be sure to email us at brace22 at protonmail.com. Please leave us a five-star review wherever you are listening and send to a friend if you found value in this discussion. Thanks. We appreciate it.